Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm your host, David Myers. The events of January 6, 2021, seem to some a distant memory, but remain for others a deep trauma. Even with all of the inflamed political rhetoric and outrageous behavior of the Trump years, it seemed far-fetched to assume that a violent uprising against the House of the People in the halls of Congress could occur. And yet violent insurrectionists had been plotting for weeks, often abetted by wild conspiracy theories such as QAnon. All of this might appear to be distant not only in time, but also space. And yet we know that extremism, especially white national extremism, is in our midst. The Luskin Center produced a report November 29 called All Is Not Well in the Golden State that identified and mapped white nationalist extremism in the state. And then, in the wake of January 6, it emerged that there are white right-wing extremist elements not only in Southern California, but at UCLA. And that prompted another Luskin Center report. I'm pleased to welcome to then and now two key researchers from that team of undergraduate researchers, Tala Khalgati, a senior majoring in economics and public affairs, and Brandon Bruchim, a senior studying public affairs, political science, and history. Both are headed to prestigious law schools next year, but I'm really delighted to welcome them today to then and now. Welcome, Tala and Brandon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Professor. It's a delight to have you. So tell us about yourselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about your UCLA story. Um, what do you study and why? Um, I mentioned what you study, but tell us a little bit more in depth why you study what you study. Thank you. Um, so I'm studying, uh, I'm triple majoring at UCLA, which is a little bit unusual, obviously. But um, I just think I always had a very broad interest in many different subjects. And I think COVID uh, in particular, it caused a lot of problems um, in terms of the normal things that one might do at school. But one of the things it did do was it allowed me to sort of take a, a little bit of a heavier course load. And, and when, um, when I was deciding what I wanted to do with my senior year, I was really interested in doing a thesis in the political science department. So I picked up my third major. Um, and yeah, that's where I'm at now. At UCLA, I had the chance to serve on the undergraduate council during my junior year. I was general representative three. And before that, I was also um, vice chair of the communications board, which is the student media publisher on campus. Hmm. Okay. So I just want to go back to your majors, Brandon, public affairs, political science, and history. I could imagine there being a common thread there. Um, did you find that common thread? Is there a common thread? And how does that relate to your interest in student government and generally in public affairs? Yeah, no, definitely there is. Um, I always felt that if you really want to understand politics or policymaking, you need to have a very uh, fundamental grounding in history. And you need to have a fundamental grounding in sort of how we uh, how we've got in the world that we do, and especially how our country has developed. Um, I think that um, what public affairs gave me was somewhat different than political science in that a lot of my political science courses were more internationally oriented. I was a, a international relations concentration, but public affairs was more into policymaking and sort of the policymaking processes that our country has. And, and I felt they complemented uh, each other very well, but they were not exactly the same. So I thought it was worth doing both. Thank you. Um, and Tala, tell us a little bit about your um, academic choices. Yeah, so I study economics and public affairs. Brandon and I share a major. I, I, I chose economics largely because it felt like the most difficult of all of my interests. I came to college and I think I was interested in political science, history, um, you know, international relations and economics. And out of all of those it seemed like economics was the, the one that was hardest to teach to myself. And it felt like something I needed to learn in a classroom. And I, I'm really grateful for, for learning it. And I think that it, it interacts with other disciplines far more frequently than I thought it did. 
Um, but I also studied public affairs and I, I picked up the major my second year after two years in the economics major because I was really frustrated with how insular the field of economics can be sometimes. And especially, I mean, at UCLA, the lower division courses for, for freshmen and sophomores, like the weeder courses are very theory based and very math heavy. And it felt very disconnected from the real world. So uh, I felt like public affairs was a good compliment and it ended up being a great compliment um, to the things that I was learning in econ because it sort of provided more of a sociological, anthropological, political science style lens to those same problems that we tackle um, in economics classrooms. So having taught both of you, I can say that you are outstanding students. Uh, you love a good argument. Um, and as I heard from, from, uh, from Tala, um, you're really up for challenges, including serious intellectual challenges. Um, and yet at the same time, you've also been very involved in life beyond uh, the classroom. Um, and maybe Tal, you can tell us a little bit about um, what kinds of activities um, have drawn your attention outside of the classroom. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think my two main involvements on campus, extracurricular wise, one was cultural. I was very involved in the Iranian student group as an undergraduate, serving as vice president my junior year. Um, and, you know, that took up a lot of my time. And then in tandem with that, I was also involved in like political organizing. I helped reestablish the J Street U chapter here at UCLA, which is a liberal advocacy group, which pushes for a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and those two activities were sort of both of my passion projects as an undergraduate, one cultural, one political um, here at UCLA. And Brandon, do you want to say a little bit more? You mentioned that you were involved in student government. Uh, were there other activities that uh, that drew you in uh, other than classroom? Yeah, I was also very involved in the Hill community on campus, um, and I did a lot of work there. Um, in addition to that, I, um, I I spent a good amount of time in a group called Bruin Political Union and was the chair of that organization during my junior year. I'm still involved as an ex-officio member of the board, um, but senior year, I've tried to take things a little bit slower. And so that position in particular should have um, positioned you um, in, a, in a place where you could have a, a pretty good grasp of uh, the climate of student political activity and expression. Um, and I, I'd like to hear from you how you assess the state of um, political discourse and activism among students during your time at UCLA. And let's start with you, Brandon. Yeah, so one of, just generally in American politics, I, I've been concerned about polarization issues for a long time. Um, and I think especially when I came to UCLA, I, that was one of the big reasons I got involved in BPU to begin with. Um, BPU organizes our campus debates or historically has. So I've gotten a chance to see sort of how Bruin uh, Republicans and Bruin Democrats interact with each other and, and sort of their dynamics on campus. Um, I think historically, there was always like an underlying tension as, as might be natural between uh, opposing partisan organizations. But I think when, um, uh, when I was in my senior year, sort of the tensions really increased, um, coinciding with some of the, the events that we discuss in the report. Uh, Bruno Republicans, they they've always been a very uh, diverse organization, even during our younger years at UCLA. But I think um, during junior year, there was sort of a more extremist element that came about and gained a larger foothold in the club. And the club was very divided, um, but it definitely manifested itself during some of our debates when we had some of the more uh, extreme members within the organization on the debate stage with Bruin Democrats. And there were sometimes spats or like very like intense disagreements um, that, I mean, everybody would see. But And Tal, how did campus climate um, in terms of discourse and activism look to you? Um, and you mentioned your involvement in uh, J Street U. Um, so you had um, your own angle of observation on debate around Israel-Palestine, um, you know, as fractious an issue as uh, as there is in terms of a student uh, politics on American university campuses. So I'm just curious how you assess uh, the years uh, of your time at UCLA in this regard. Yeah, I think not too differently from Brandon. Um, I think 
reflecting sort of national trends or student politics has become far more polarized in these last few years. My freshman year, the most contentious thing that Bruin Republicans could do was bring Ben Shapiro to campus. And I remember that vividly. Um, but now sort of looking back, that almost seems almost like child's play compared to the things that they've done in our senior year. So I think that there's firstly been, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure a bit later, clear shifts in politics. I can I can clearly name a rightward shift in Bruin Republicans and then sort of a corresponding knee-jerk reaction almost from Bruin Democrats, um, sort of like a disgust, I think almost rightfully so, with the direction of those politics. And I think that has manifested in these debates that Brandon references from the Bruin Political Union, which I also briefly was part of my freshman and sophomore years. These, these debates called crossfire debates were um, every quarter, they were quite frequent, they were well attended. And then at a certain point in time, um, they stopped happening. And that was because the organizations refused to sort of sit together at the same table um, and, and debate each other. And I think that's really emblematic of, of like the greater divisions on the campus community. But I do think one other thing I'll say is that because UCLA is so large, unless you're really, really dedicated to getting to know multiple perspectives on an issue, you probably won't notice the polarization because you can just sort of live in your own little silo or bubble. I think Brandon and I are lucky enough to have friends in both clubs um, during our time in undergraduate, but I think for the most part, the campus community just sort of lives in its own little little silo or bubble. And has that changed over the course of your time? Uh, I just want to sort of get a clear sense. I mean, Brandon, you mentioned something happening in junior year. Um, is that the predicament or condition uh, to which you arrived on campus when you came four years ago? That is to say, you know, this siloing of, uh, of, of political perspectives. So you sort of talk to the people with whom you felt comfortable or yeah, think, has there been a palpable change? No, I think that that's pretty much still the case, I guess, from year to year. Um, there are more or less, you know, politically engaged students who want to sit down with people who disagree with them. And so it really does depend on the Nate, like the, the makeup of the student body. I remember a couple of students who were seniors when I was a freshman that were really dedicated to this cause. And that's sort of why Bruin Political Union even came to be. Um, but I think it's really always been the case, especially in a school with this many students that you're going to just sort of be surrounded by your own people, especially if you study politics or, or history, which oftentimes have a leftward lean to them. Uh, one thing I'd like to add is I also think, though, that uh, like a common misconception is that even all the people in UCLA's political science program or public affairs program are deeply involved and connected to politics. I don't think that's necessarily the case a lot of the time. I think there, there's a, a small but notable minority within these, uh, within these sort of circles that get deeply involved and you sort of, when you're in them, you know everybody and, and they're sort of a part of your world. But it's I, like, I wouldn't describe like even the types of events that BPU would put on would be mostly for the people who are deeply engaged with politics, who followed the issues, who knew what was going on, mm -hmm. rather than somebody who might just be a political science student who is doing it for the sake of graduating quickly or for other reasons. Mm. Um, so I think the idea that one walks across Bruin Walk and they're just bombarded with political messages, I don't mm. even think that's true. I think a lot of people just aren't too engaged with politics. And then the people who are, are very intensely engaged. Yeah, and I wonder, did you see a significant uptick in activism, though it's hard to gauge because you weren't really much on campus after uh, the murder of George Floyd? Uh, did you sense that? Because, you know, we, 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 see, we saw millions of people um, come out into the streets for the first time and sort of demand structural change. Did you sense that in, in the last year? Or um, was, it, was it as apathetic as, as, as it had been before? No, I think that, I mean, again, to caveat, my circles are not representative of UCLA's general student body, but I do think that I at least notice a very significant uptick in, at the very least, social media activism, to what extent that is real activism is another conversation. But I, I do think that I saw far more people engaging, whether it be on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook in these sorts of issues. And I think the one other thing I notice is a lot of student organizations that generally don't make comments on politics almost felt compelled um, from what it seemed to release statements affirming, you know, their support for black lives, which is a great, a great development. 
Um, and it's something that doesn't necessarily, these, these orgs a lot of the times just sort of stay clear of politics, whether it be cultural affinity groups or religious organizations or what, what be it. Um, for the first time, I saw them really come out and make a political statement. Yeah. Um, okay, well, this is a really helpful background um, to our discussion of the report that you had a significant hand in drafting. Um, I mentioned at the outset that this report was an update of an older Luskin Center report on white nationalist activity in California. Um, what prompted the new report? Can you tell us? Yeah, I can take this one. Um, I think what was the clear reason the group, I mean, I wasn't involved in the first report, but I think the, the clear reason the, the initial group got back together was the January 6th Capitol insurrection. It was such a, you know, public display of white supremacy that it almost felt like the authors of the report needed to respond to it. Um, and I was brought in because I think Brandon and I both had been following along with this Bruin Republican saga since it started at the beginning of this school year. And um, I think, or at, well, time, last school year. Um, and no, this school year? It's no, it was, it was 2019, 2020. Which is last school year. Yeah. Okay, right. So anyway, so I was brought in because I had sort of found an article of this student that we'll talk about later that we ended up writing a majority of the report about Christian Secor. And it wasn't, it wasn't even related to the Capitol insurrection. He had just toppled um, a monolith, which are these, I guess, just like long structures people had been putting up across the country for some sort of fun joke. And he had toppled it and replaced it with a cross with a group of friends and started chanting Christ is King. It got some media coverage and I had found our Brandon and actually sent me this article about what had happened. And so I sent it along, I think to you um, and was supposed to speak with the group just briefly about what had happened. And then in the interim, before I was able to speak to the group, I ended up finding out via Twitter that not only had you toppled this monolith and erected a cross, you'd also stormed the Capitol. So then it became sort of imperative to add that to the to the report that was already sort of like due for a follow up. Right. So the report operated at both the um, had focused on both the state and national levels and uh, the um, growing strength of particularly white nationalist extremist groups. And you unearthed um, this very local chapter to the story. Um, in fact, a chapter unfolding at UCLA. Um, Brandon, tell us a little bit more about what was going on in the Bruin Republicans Club um, over uh, a long period of time. Yeah. So Bruin Republicans, traditionally, it's been a very, um, what I'd call a standard conservative organization. They were about small government, uh, sort of traditional GOP issues like uh, gun rights, um, pro-life orientation generally, though quite honestly on a college campus, I think some of the social issues were less intense, but that's just my impression. Um, but very like traditionally conservative, think Marco Rubio, um, maybe not as much like the Bushes, but Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, people like that. Um, and then I think in 2019, 2020, there was an event at the beginning of the year um, with Donald Trump Jr. on campus. And we discussed this in the report. Um, Trump Jr., I was on student council at the time, and the council was very concerned about this event because they felt it would be a, um, many people on council felt it would be sort of an unsafe environment for undocumented students and others, um, uh, and also like other minority students. Um, but what ended up happening at the event was that the real threats, in my opinion, were the people who came into the event. These people were, uh, in fact, a group called the Groypers. Their goal was to push the GOP farther to the right into more ethno-nationalist territory. Um, and, and most people on campus at the time, based on what I could collect, didn't really pick up on a difference. And I think it might be a blind spot where... Um, there's an inability. Some people felt, oh, this is all the same. They're all the same sorts of people. And I, and I really think there's a big difference. Um, Trump Jr.'s ability to speak on stage was basically cut off. Um, the event ended after, I think, 30 to 45 minutes. And that sort of marked a major shift in, in, uh, in campus culture, I think, and it marked the beginning of a, a rightward shift to Bruin Republicans. And we go into, I don't want to rehash the whole report, but 
we, uh, basically from there, the more conservative elements gained a greater hold in uh, Bruin Republicans, um, and it created a lot of tension internally within the organization. I was friends with several members, and they were all uh, noticing this, and there were people who were actively leaving. Um, and so, yeah, that it, there was a big shift during that school year. Right. Well, I just need to pause here and sort of take stock of the shifts that have occurred. Um, when you mention the idea of mainstream Republican, sort of established Republican, I, I guess I think of the Bushes and Dick Lugar and John Warner. I don't think of Ted Cruz, um, who, um, uh, after all, uh, voted against authorization of a number of states' election of uh, of of Joe Biden, um, and yet within the context you're describing, a Ted Cruz would be sort of holding down a left wing position. So maybe just set the stage again to tell us, you know, what was going on between sort of the the Ted Cruz wing, which I would say is on the right wing of the Republican Party, and the Groypers. How many? students were swept into that sort of uh, space between, you know, the right wing of the establishment and the far right. Yeah. So Ted Cruz, I think there, there's an important clarification to be made. I think even among a lot of conservatives, Ted Cruz is a con- controversial figure, not necessarily for his positions, but just because quite honestly, a lot of people don't like they sense like a lot of political opportunism and, and, um, in a sense that this guy is not really about um, uh, about like the issues they care about and is, is a lot about show. Um, but Ted Cruz, when I, when I talk about what I mean, Ted Cruz or Rubio is this sort of belief in genuine small government, um, a very robust uh, American foreign policy that engages with the world. Um, for, so for example, they might see China right now as a really big threat and want to like push back against that versus a more um, the Groypers, I'd say they're more ethno-nationalistic. So Republicans have traditionally been uh, skeptical on immigration. They might want immigration uh, controls and, and vetting and monitoring. But I think there's a big difference between vetting and wanting to like be able to see who comes into the country and who leaves versus the Groypers will want to do stuff like shut down the border or and immigration altogether, and refugee programs altogether, uh, maintain basically, I mean, Nick Fuentes has said it himself, maintain basically zero levels of immigration. Um, and, and I mean, we could go issue by issue. But basically, I think there's a sense that the, that the Groypers want a much more um, ethnically oriented sort of politics that Republicans traditionally have been about free markets and liberalism in that sense. Um, right. but, but it's striking, it's striking that, that Donald Trump Jr. was perceived as, uh, as uh, too weak-kneed, it would seem, for that position, even though Donald Trump Sr. You know, made a, a, a very substantial political career about inveighing against immigrants and claiming that he would shut down the border. So what you're suggesting is that Trump himself was deemed insufficiently orthodox in his commitment to this uh, ethnic white agenda for uh, the Groypers. There is definitely the, yes. Yeah. There's definitely the issue of Trump, the candidate or Trump in rhetoric versus Trump in practice where Trump would often say like very aggressive things. Um, or makes social media tweets, but the Senate Republicans sort of constrained a lot of what Trump could do in practice. And obviously a president has a lot of leeway um, and through executive orders and things like that. And I, and I can't exactly speak for what, uh, what particular issues the Groypers were latching onto beyond like immigration and other things. I can't psychoanalyze them, but that that's the impression I get that they felt that Trump had made all these promises on the campaign and spoke in a certain way. But when he got into office, the institution constrains you. Interesting. I mean, so were these people um, not Trump MAGA supporters, in your view? Uh, I can jump in on this. I think, I think Trump was the closest vehicle they had to sort of 
actualizing their politics. He never represented every single, you know, political perspective that they might have espoused, but out of every single Republican potential, you know, candidate or or politician, he was probably the closest to their ideology. And so I think it was somewhat of a compromise on their views. Right. But to the point that that they would be willing to shout down his son. I think it's less about shouting him down. I think it's actually like sort of a concerted effort to apply pressure on him to actually move him further to the right. I think that they see him as malleable. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even attended or asked for a Q&A. But I think they were upset at Don Jr. at that event because the Q&A option wasn't available to them. Otherwise, they would have been able to do what is a very famous Groper tactic, which is to, you know, insert themselves into to mainstream-ish conservative spaces and, and ask questions that have sort of, um, you know, racist undertones or anti-Semitic undertones or just straight up um, bigoted. Got it. And who were these Groypers? Were they from campus? Were they off campus? I think it's safe to say a majority were off campus. I myself wasn't there, but from people that attended the event or are familiar with the group, I think the vast majority of them were sort of just members of the conservative off-campus community that might have been, you know, at a variety of Bruin Republican events in the past. One thing to note is that um, Christian Secor was also there. So the, the the focus of our report, the student who did end up storming the Capitol, was amongst that group of Groypers who was shouting. So there was at least a bit of a student presence. And we know that for sure because Secor was there. Okay. I, just for those of us who weren't there, um, do you have any, can you help us set the scene? When was this? Um, mm. And and how many people were there? How many people are we talking about? And I guess- To my understanding, yeah. To my understanding, the the event, what I mean, I know it was in Moore Hall, which is UCLA's largest um, lecture hall on campus, um, Moore 100, I believe. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not, I, I never got a sense of how like filled the event was. I just know that um, there was a group of people there who wanted, who who were expecting the ability to ask Donald Trump Jr. questions. And then it had been announced that Q&A would be canceled ahead of the event uh, because the organizers, which was part of this group called Turning Point USA, which is a a standard, it's a pretty typical conservative group on campus. Um, TPUSA was hosting the event, Trump Jr. was coming and they knew these groupers were gonna be in the room. So they canceled the Q&A ahead of time. But the Groypers came anyway and basically started shouting down Trump Jr. because he wouldn't allow them to ask him questions, which was a vehicle they used presumably to sort of ask leading questions that would catch uh, Trump Jr. in a pickle. And then they'd use it as soundbite to gain more supporters. Yeah. And this was in November. So it was sort of the beginning of what later became um, a lot of controversy in Brunner, very early in the school year sort of got the ball rolling. And then there were many, you know, events that happened afterwards that, 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 that increased the tension that sort of started on that day. I'm sorry, this is November, 2019 or 2020? 2019. 2019. Okay. So a year before the election, mm-hmm. um, Trump Jr. was, uh, working the country. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's your sense about how appealing that kind of, uh, far-right perspective of the Groypers is uh, to UCLA students. We know of the case of Christian Score. We'll talk about him in just a minute. But is there a wide um, constituency on campus for that perspective? I, I really don't think it's that pervasive. I'm sure there are some more people uh, who believe it, uh, believe in this sort of ideology on campus. Um, but the reality is, I think Bruin Republicans' numbers just in terms of how the organization sort of collapsed um, later on in the year, once the once the tensions became more public, um, it, that's reflective of a fact that the conservative movement, at least at UCLA, um, in its mainstream forms, don't really agree with this sort of ideology, and they're willing to leave the mainstream conservative organizations because of it, mm-hmm. which show I think it show it's reflective of how. Um, toxic, I think some of these fights can get and, and, and how like conservative students don't agree. True conservative students might not agree with this stuff. 
Okay, well, maybe we'll get to what true conservative looks like. But tell us about Christian Sikor, who stood at the center of uh, the report, at least the section dealing with UCLA. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's his significance to the story? Yeah, it's he's sort of the focal point here. I think his basic timeline on campus, you can say it begins with the Don Jr. event almost. Um, he is a student studying political science, you know, second year. Well, at this point, he's a, a first year transfer student um, studying political science. And he he sort of emerges in Bruin Republican spaces and almost immediately students in the leadership realize that his politics are way beyond the pale. And this is sort of how I got to know him is because, well, I don't know him personally, but um, I traveled with a delegation of UCLA students and a couple of them were in Bruin Republicans. And I remember distinctly hearing them discussing, you know, their, their worries around his political ideologies, potential like Holocaust denialism and things of that, that nature that were very concerning to them. Um, and so he sort of gains infamy in Bruin Republicans very early on. And I think um, a lot of the leadership was very concerned with, with his political behavior. And it only sort of got worse as the year went on. And, I, and there's like a string of events that, that are tied to, um, to, to this narrative. The, one of them being um, when Michelle Malkin came to campus, who is a very famous groiper, another member of this sort of alt-right ethno-nationalist spin on conservatism. And he, uh, Christian Secor, attended this event later, was Michelle Malkin's intern at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and just generally, I think, found a home in these alt-right strains of the Republican Party. And I don't think that that home was necessarily in Bruin Republicans. I think that that home was in channels like um, perhaps Parler or or Gab or 8chan. And um, through these, I think he was able to find a community of people who shared his political ideology. And then later he um, ended up being not just someone that politically active students were aware of and were aware of as a threat, but rather someone who actually broke the law. Um, but yeah, that's sort of his, his political journey. And he ended up, um, as a result of him, and we've talked about this, of course, Bruin Republicans leadership stepped down, but he also started his own club on campus called America First Bruins. And that's sort of when he was alerted, uh, to the UCLA student body as a potential dangerous student, because this was a club that anybody, you know, who's a student of history understands that America First is, a phrase that's deeply concerning. And I think a lot of students at that stage, this was March of 2020, um, realized that he served as a major threat. Um, and yeah, the story continues from there. Mm-hmm. And was he a lone wolf? Um, was anyone else? Um, did he have any fellow travelers? Um, I think I think he had, uh, there were people in Bruin Republicans who certainly, um, were willing to sort of accommodate him and and um, and and were not willing to denounce him, but I don't. The thing is, the these sorts of ideological differences are sometimes difficult to detect, and people might be. There's, in my opinion, there's a difference between somebody who's willing to tolerate somebody and somebody who wholeheartedly believes in an ideology, um, and I think that's more difficult to assess. What is what we can say? I think is that there were certainly people who were willing to um, to allow him to be like mm-hmm. a recognized member of Republicans yeah. and and sort of be a part of the club culture. This is also where I think Brandon and I disagree. Um, I think that the same people who tolerated him, in my mind, probably were OK with and likely shared his ideology. I mean, I've, there's no need to go through the names of the students, but there are students that we know in Bruin Republicans um, that even after, for example, he stormed the Capitol, were still sort of friendly and accommodating to him. Um, and I think that, you know, that 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 accommodation sort of to me signals almost an agreement with with his political beliefs or else it would have been enough to sort of sever the friendship. At least that's my perspective. Can you help us map these various organizations that you've discussed? So you have Bruin Republicans, you have American First you have Turning Point. Where do they all stand in relationship to one another? Yeah, so I think that there's a national framework of conservatism on college campuses, and then there's the more local UCLA context. So the national framework, there are many different affinity organizations. Some of them exist on college campuses simply as funding vehicles. 
to bring in speakers. Others are actually clubs with members um, and students that feel tied to those politics. So um, some of them include, so Turning Point USA, which we've mentioned a few times, is uh, an organization founded by a man by the name of Charlie Kirk. And this is more Trump-aligned politics. Um, it's definitely not a Bush-style conservatism. It's, it's, far, it's, it's, it's to the right of that. Um, and then um, then there's, what's the other one, Brandon? The, yeah, uh, yeah the, Young Americans for Freedom. There's the Young Americans for Freedom. And so they're more Reagan-esque uh, politics, far more moderate. Um, and I think those are sort of like the main two that you need to know. At UCLA, they don't really have students that are members of them, but rather they are the ones that sponsor events that bring speakers to campus and they sort of foot the bill for that. And then in the UCLA context, there's really just two that are the key players in this in this sort of story. There's Bruin Republicans and America First Bruins. America First Bruins, I think, had three members and those were the three signatories. It was not a popular club on campus by any means. Um, but Bruin Republicans, like Brandon's already said, was of course the leading conservative organization on campus. Right, so you very helpfully uh, called attention to uh, this uh, occurrence at UCLA in the report from student politics to capital insurrection, the intensification of extremism at UCLA and beyond. Um, and um, anyone who's interested can read this by going to the Luskin Center website, uh, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Um, but I want to now turn our attention to what we should do about this phenomenon. Um, what is it that uh, that you think universities can do to deal with um, the phenomenon of extremist uh, political expression uh, as reflected in Christian Sikor and perhaps some fellow travelers of his. I mean, universities are famously places of free and open speech. Universities are marketplaces of ideas. Universities are places that encourage difficult conversations about difficult issues. How do we balance the imperative of maintaining that open conversation on one hand and assuring a safe environment for all. And by that, I mean an environment safe from threatening extremist elements. Um, you both are going to law school, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm not uh, 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 imposing upon you unfairly. Um, these are yeah. questions that you're going to be taking up in your uh, constitutional law and First Amendment classes. So I'm, I'm just wondering what you think about you know, what this episode says about the state of play on the university today, the university campus, and, and what might need to be fixed or modified, if anything. So I think the first thing, and you touched on this, Professor, but I, the first thing I think we need do need to affirm is that if one is, is, is confronted with the alternatives of sort of suppressing free speech for the sake of preventing even uh, very extreme ideas from being on campus, or sort of having a more open system. I really think that even after uh, looking at all this research, um, maintaining them as liberal in terms of openness, as, as open of a, of a free speech policy on campus is really essential. Even if it's only for the sake of knowing sort of what, what sorts of ideas are pervasive on the campus. What, are, what do people believe? And, and I, I think it's very important for dialogue reasons, I think, that if you want to have a healthy political culture, people need to be able to speak openly and freely. But at the same time, you also it's also beneficial in the sense that it's better for the ideas to be out in the open than to only be suppressed and then sort events sort of like the capital insurrection happen. Um, that being said, I do think that there are, there are some places where I think universities can can do a better job of sort of allowing students, especially when they create student organizations, to create organizations that reflect their mission and maintain control of that mission to make sure it doesn't lose its purpose by other members who want to take advantage of free speech liberties. Um, for example, at UCLA, just the context that we're most familiar with, um, student organizations, when you apply, so when you apply to an organization, an organization might have an application process and they might determine whether you can be in the club or you cannot be in the club or whether you're a member or not. But so even though there are like entry pathways to organizations, very rarely, it's very hard sometimes to remove members who do not reflect the organization's values, 
who act out of line with behavioral or other sorts of policies that the organization has set out for its membership, which I do think organizations have a right to set that. The fact that I am on a public college campus doesn't mean that I, I have a right to create my own organization and determine, determine as, I mean, as, long, if, as soon as student funding comes into it, it might get more complicated because those are public funds. But in terms of just, I want to start a club and I want to uh, have a banner under uh, some issue and I want to organize a few people to come to weekly club meetings. These things don't like take taxpayer funds and, and you're just sort of creating a group to discuss or do activism with. That's totally fine. I, I, I think that students should be able to determine who are in the organizations and what their missions are. Um, and I think that uh, schools should do a better job of, of, of sort of maintaining those sorts of policies. Okay. I mean, that opens up all sorts of questions. Um, let's say you have a group of students who wanted to start a Groypers chapter and didn't want to take any money from, uh, from the university. Um, you know, w- w- would we be open to that as a manifestation of our commitment to free and open speech? Maybe so, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Tala, what do you think? Yeah, what, I think... What do you think about this general question? Yeah, the general question, I think it's like the hardest one to answer. It's one that I think the answer is something I don't like, which is just that, especially at a public university like UCLA, the safeguards on free speech, uh, sometimes unfortunately, allow for the existence of these unsavory um, political perspectives. So like this example of the Groyper Club that you bring up, I think, you know, after reading the student code of conduct pretty closely, it, it would have probably been okay to start uh, a full-on by-name Groyper club. I mean, they started the America First Club. Um, and so I, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky question. I think that the only real solution that I can think of is training students in dialogue because um, I, I think that a lot of the time students, when they're faced with these different perspectives, which is honestly a blessing of attending a public university that's so diverse and so large, is you get to meet all of these People. Some of them have great politics and some of them have terrible politics. And I think that they should all be allowed to to speak on a university campus. But we have to know how to engage with them respectfully. And I think that that's where things sort of fell off at UCLA, um, where, you know, it was it was it was like um, a bunch of students on Twitter sort of just. Uh, very upset that the existence of this club was a thing on the campus, but didn't really know how to engage with it sus- uh, substantively. Um, so that's something that I, I think I feel very passionately about. As, as we think about you know what, what kinds of balancing act the university um, should uh, engage in, um, you know we should ask ourselves, um, you know what what are the what what are what are should the limits be? Um, who is and who who shouldn't be involved? Um, can we make these kinds of determinations, this group in, this group out? Um, it, it's a very, very difficult uh, balancing act. Um, I, I just want to ask you if you have any more specific ideas about what you think should be done at UCLA. Um, what, what, what needs to be fixed, if anything, um, in uh, the system uh, that uh, sort of uh, is responsible for overseeing uh, student life? Just going off that last point, uh, Professor, one thing, one thing I, I, I like to add is I also think just generally um, there's, an, there's a general issue of in our like very polarized times, I think it, it's more difficult than now for people who might like get along up on otherwise or have similar personalities or similar interests otherwise. Politics today divides a lot of people in a way that I think is, is very different from um, from even 10 or 15 years ago, where people just have a more difficult time disagreeing with each other on very substantive issues and figuring those things out. That being said, I, I do think you bring up a good point in, in there are certain ideas that are like potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think that the university, there, there are things that can happen culturally on a campus where sort of there's, there's a, there, there are greater social, there are social norms and sort of cultural practices of like we're going to respect other students if we disagree. We're going to, and that's sort of what I think Bruin Political Union was always about. We wanted to create a space where people could have difficult substantive conversations about like very contentious issues, but still have a fundamental sense of respect with the person they were talking to. Um, I'll add one thing is 
you know, in my ideal world, um, an organization like the Groypers or America First wouldn't be allowed to form an, a club on campus. I think that's my ideal world and that's the honest truth. But then, you know, it gets you thinking um, the alternative or a, a sort of like an extension of that is how do we decide what political ideologies are beyond the pale? Does that mean that, you know, a communist student couldn't form a club, perhaps this club is all about hating capitalists, you know, is that too hateful of a club to exist at UCLA? So I think, right, like when you start imposing restrictions in one direction, you inevitably open the door to restricting um, a lot more freedoms of students. And I just think that, I think what Brandon said initially, which is that if the, if the, if the decision is either, uh, you know, you restrict a lot of speech for the sake of protecting um, students, or you allow the most free speech possible. And, you know, sometimes students end up storming the Capitol. I would probably choose the latter, as funny as it does sound. I'm sorry, the latter being? Uh, the, the last one. So the one where there's there there's ample res- uh, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but You're on the side of more speech rather than restricted speech. Yeah, I think that it's honestly a slippery slope. Uh, but we'll we'll invite you back in three years after you've had uh, your serious legal education to <laughs> <laughs> and see, see if your attitudes have changed. You know, as we move towards conclusion, um, mm-hmm. I'd like to just ask uh, about your own experiences on campus and connection to these questions. Um, really provide you with an opportunity to offer a kind of valedictory um, mm-hmm. as you uh, move towards graduation after your brilliant undergraduate careers. Um, what's the state of play on campus? I mean, you've both been involved in um, many organizations that have um, uh, entertained many passionate debates uh, on uh, very important topics. Um, and you've been at the center of those activities. Um, and yet you report that there's a kind of siloing and even closing of the mind on university campuses. So what's the balance? Um, you know, what's your cost-benefit analysis of, of you know, the, the culture of discourse um, on university campuses and at UCLA as refracted through your experiences? How do you end up thinking about it? I think we need to discuss issues very passionately and be very interested in many different sorts of topics, even if they're contentious. And we should have a culture that's willing to discuss difficult issues and feel like feel we should step towards those conversations rather than away from them. Um, but the fact that we disagree or we find um, other people's views objectionable, I don't think that means we should hate those people or view those people as enemies or refuse to engage with them. And I worry that increasingly people in po- involved in politics view, and there's a bunch of research and data to back this up, There's a sense that people are increasingly not willing to have those conversations with people they disagree strongly with. They might find their views very hateful. And and I mean, certainly in the case of America first and the Reuters, they are. Um, But I, but I, I still think that it's really, I mean, I think it's just really important. Some of my like most, at least in my experience, some of the most like eye opening and and, and sort of, um, Mm profound conversations I have had are not with the people I agree with, but with the people I disagree with. Right. And the idea that I wouldn't, if I didn't have those conversations, I don't think I'd, um, I develop intellectually in the same way and, and I'd be worse off for it. And did that become more infrequent or difficult over time? Not on, I mean, I don't think on my end, I've, I've never really lost a friendship because of politics. Um, and I sort of am very cognizant of the fact that, like there are bigger things than than only, and I mean I discuss politics with everybody. I, it's it's my life club, but I just think that um, I think it's become more difficult for a lot of people. But at least in the circles I've run in, and sort of the type of person I want to be, I've really tried to make sure that it doesn't get in the way of my relationships. Thank you, Brandon. Tala. Yeah, um, I think that. I think what I said initially about these silos has only gotten worse with. Um, the pandemic. I think that, you know, you can't, let's take the the issue of Israel-Palestine, for example, say you're a strong supporter of the state of Israel. You cannot walk down Bruin Walk these days and see the apartheid wall that's put up by SJP because you're not on campus. And in in, in addition to that, like you can't just waltz into the club meeting um, because it's next door to the class you just had and maybe hear a perspective that's different from your own. So I think that, I mean, 
maybe it's something that melts away as the pandemic, God willing, comes to an end. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely growing worse in in that sense. In terms of, I do sense like in my in my classes, in my majors, when there are discussions of political issues that some people have differing perspectives on, sometimes it gets kind of ugly. Um, and people, I think, have you know, justifiably or not justifiably so taken on political causes as sort of sort of part and parcel of who they are. So when you disagree with the political cause, you're sort of disagreeing with them as a person and their morals as a human being. And then it becomes almost impossible to discuss. But I will say in my own experience, I mean, you're not just like as a student, you you don't just sort of stand on campus and let the campus like you know, impact you, I think that's like actually the opposite. So if you really want to engage with people that you disagree with, if you really want to learn from perspectives that are different from your own, that's also very possible. Um, And I think that's sort of been my college experience. And I think that there does exist and will continue to exist at least a small group of students um, on every college campus I can speak about UCLA that are genuinely interested. I mean, Brandon and I disagree on basically everything. Um, and here we are really good friends. And I think that there are students like that who who are willing to sort of sit down and if the friendship survives, even if you do get in an argument um, and 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 you, you can continue sort of learning from those new perspectives, even if they do sort of frustrate you. So I think in terms of like looking back on my own experience, it's been very positive in that regard. But I do think that the like the trends on campus um, might be going in the opposite direction. And I should add that not only are you uh, uh, debate partners and good friends, <laughs> two members of a seven-member research team that produced an outstanding Luskin Center report on the phenomenon of uh, uh, extremism on campus and beyond. Um, thank you so much, Talak Algati and Brandon Bruchin, for joining us on Then and Now. It's really been a most illuminating hour uh, with you. Thank you so much, Professor. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners out there. Wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.